welcome to the Untribal podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. I'm joining you today in our uh, studios in sunny Leith, and we're absolutely blessed to be joined digitally by co-leader and recently elected government minister, Lorna Slater. How are you doing, Lorna? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Good to hear. Um, and I want to kick off learning a bit about more about yourself because I think it was uh, around this time last year you had your first televised debate. And I think a lot of people were expecting Patrick Harvey just because he'd been a uh, leader for the Greens for years before. And on comes this beautiful lassie with a Canadian accent that absolutely blew us away <laughs> with her knowledge on Scottish politics. So tell us a bit about how you landed here. So the debate that you mentioned was in March 23rd, uh, which was etched in my mind because I was absolutely terrified, having never done anything of the kind before. And I had a terrible attack of sort of imposter syndrome a few days before that, which I, I put on my Instagram feed just because everyone else in that debate was either a member of the Scottish Parliament or a member of Parliament or the first minister, like, oh my goodness, I'm an engineer, you know, I read circuit diagrams and write technical documentation, you know, I fight with people about using the right kind of paint, and whether there's enough anodes on the turbine to stop it rusting away, that's what I do, I don't stand up in front, it was ridiculous, you know, like, so I had this sort of major attack of nerves, um, but I guess you could say this, where, where I have got to, I guess, now that I have a political career, as of a few months ago, as of being elected in May, wasn't a sort of Part of any plan. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I'm the kind of person who tends to throw myself into whatever is my passion of the moment and then just see where it takes me. And after the election, uh, sorry, after the independence referendum in 2014, uh, before that, I was not political at all. I mean, I always voted, but I had never participated in any sort of activism or campaigning or any party politics. But two weeks after the independence referendum, I joined the Scottish Greens. I joined a political party, as did tens of thousands of other people from the independence movement. Um, this, I know the Scottish Green membership um, quadrupled in a matter of a week or two. And I think, you know, the SNP had a similar sort of growth. And it was, it was that feeling that we'd missed an opportunity, that Scotland had had a chance to do something different, and we'd lost it. And that really prompted me to to, to you know, put down my, I think it's three quid, <laughs> three quid to join the Greens, uh, to put down my three pounds and, and show up to a meeting. And since, from that point on, I really just volunteered for everything, whether it was helping with a campaign or whether, you know, when they're looking for candidates, I always just put my name down for everything. And, and here we are. So it was more a, a passion project than any sort of scheme. Well, that's kind of refreshing to hear. I mean, you know, I, I feel like all politicians should be activists in their own right. So if you're coming in with a passion, that's definitely refreshing to hear. And that's something we'll touch on the, the independence debate. But just before we get to that, I was just wondering, what does a day in the life of Lorna Slater look like? I've always wondered this about politicians, because for so many of us, you know, you get up, you get showered, you're in the work for a quarter to nine, quick blether with whoever's on reception, winding down the clock later in the afternoon. So what, what does a day in the life of a politician actually look like? So we have a, there's a kind of rhythm to our week because um, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday are the days when Parliament sits in session and Monday and Friday are days when Parliament doesn't sit. So Monday and Friday are constituency days when you do work in your regional, in my case, regional office to support your constituents. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays are days when there's business in Parliament. So you're preparing to give a speech or participate in a debate. Uh, and behind all of that, there's a lot of meetings and a lot of documents to read. So as a minister now, I'm being asked to make a lot of decisions to give input into, you know, strategies to, 
to review work that's being done by civil servants or in other people's portfolios and so on. So there's a lot of reading. So I guess my day isn't so much different. I, I get up and have my breakfast. I'm lucky enough that I can walk to work. So I'm normally at my desk at sort of half, half eight or quarter to nine boot up my computers, get a cup of tea, and then, yes, work through the, the meetings of the day, because I normally have seven or eight meetings every day, whether that's with other ministers or with its civil servants or other MSPs or people outside the parliament, stakeholders and things like that. And then in between those meetings, I try and catch up on my emails and documentation. So on a day like today, when I'm not in parliament, my day looks much like I'm sure many office workers' days look. And then on a parliament day, it's that but with the afternoon, either participating in the chamber in person, or we have a hybrid working, so then you're kind of on this Zoom Zoom type platform into the chamber to pay attention to the debates and possibly participate. So um, that's kind of it. Parliament days tend to be about 12, 12 hour days. Um, Monday on Friday, try and keep it to, to a more normal eight or nine hour day, and then try on the weekend to catch up on any papers I didn't read during the week. <laughs> That's fair enough. And, and what's the battle with this co-leader thing? This isn't something that we see very often in politics. You often have a leader and perhaps a deputy leader, but the Greens have chosen to have two co-leaders and yourself and Patrick. And what springs to mind, I don't know if you watch the US office, but the mad uh, the episode where they have co-managers and they're constantly bickering over each other. And do you have that kind of relationship with Patrick or is it very set in stone how you work it? So the, the co-leaders thing is very common in green parties around the world. And it's because green parties like to live our values. We And we sometimes use our party internal politics and structures as a way of experimenting with different types of organizational structures and different types of democracy. And one of the things we believe very strongly is that decision-making should be about consensus building and negotiation and discussion and not about hierarchy, not about giving orders and receiving them. And so we embed that right into our party structure. Another very important thing for us is equalities. And that means making sure that women have a seat, equal seat at the table to men. And again, so we embody that into our co-leader structure where what, um, at least one of our co-leaders must always be a woman. And we have co-leaders so that every decision, every everything we do is always something that has to be discussed and negotiated. And my relationship with Patrick is very good. He's, a, he's an excellent colleague and was such a great mentor and support to me coming into this election where he's an old hand, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. He's an excellent media performer. I'm new at everything. So it was very nice to have a sort of steady hand on the tiller while I'm learning the ropes. And going forward, hopefully um, we can keep that sort of structure. It's interesting to note that actually this is, the co-leader thing is reflected in all leadership positions throughout the party. So every branch has co-conveners, every national committee has co-conveners. We have a co-chairs of executive. We always do this partly to ensure we've made spaces for women in decision-making and leadership posts. And partly just, as I say, to reassure, you know, to in, build in that negotiation and discussion and consensus building that we feel is so important for kind of grown-up politics. But there's some nice practical things about that too. Nearly every position in our party is a volunteer position. And it's just so much more realistic for more people to be able to participate in politics if you're sharing a role. And actually it was wonderful during the election because we could be in two places at once. We could, you know, one of us could be doing on being you know, hustings and the other one could be on television on the same evening. Whereas the other party leaders, I could see getting more and more exhausted as the election went on because they had to do all the gigs. Whereas we got to share them between us, which was much more sane. So I think our model is excellent and everybody should do it. <laughs> Yes, it sounds pretty good to be fair, very progressive. Um, and you've also come into a country with a bit of a bizarre setup as well, because obviously Scotland is a nation within its own right. 
but we also belong to this family of nations in the United Kingdom, the Great Britain, which is also a country within its own right. So obviously we have some decision-making here and we have some decision-making down south. And um, I'm just wondering, obviously, because you've uh, come over from Canada, you've educated yourself over there, you've grew up over there, and you've come over to Scotland. I'm wondering what was the kind of realization moment where it sunk in that we definitely need to do things differently in terms of going uh, to an independent country? Was it something that dawned on you when you came over here or was it, was it something else? I guess it wasn't something that was even on my mind when I came over, came over to the UK because I was stationed down in England. I worked down in England for many years. I came up to Scotland for a job. I wasn't involved in politics at all, but I found during the independence referendum campaign, as I say, I wasn't involved in any way myself, except as a normal voter. But I found that the conversation was really interesting. And as I went about my normal daily life, people, you could overhear people sitting at bus stops talking about proportional representation or someone serving in a restaurant, say, talking to her customer about what powers were devolved to Westminster. And suddenly it seemed like everybody in the country was interested in politics and interested in their future and, and talking about these really important things that we normally don't talk about because they're unchangeable and fixed, you know, 800 lords in the House of Lords that, you know, haven't been elected is fixed. The, the fact that we spend so much of our budget on nuclear weapons is fixed. The first past the post, we don't talk about them because they're not things that we can change. And then suddenly there was this moment where we could change things and we could say, let's get rid of the nuclear weapons. Let's have more fair voting. Let's get rid of unelected lords. Let's really think about what kind of country we want to be. And countries don't get that opportunity very often. You know, that when, so I, as you say, I grew up in Canada and Canada celebrated its hundredth anniversary when I was a child. So I grew up in a young country and Canada had the opportunity to have the conversations about what kind of country it wanted to be a hundred years before I, you know, a hundred years before I was born, more, more or less, give or take. So you don't get that opportunity very often. It comes once every few centuries. And we have this opportunity in Scotland to have that conversation again. Do we want a written constitution? Who do we want making decisions? Where do we want our priorities to be? And it's very interesting to me to look at the history of, you know, Britain, the UK was one of the first parliamentary democracies, but it is now an old democracy. And the way it works is pretty ancient and decrepit and in need of reform. Whereas younger democracies like India, like New Zealand, like Australia, they structure themselves quite differently and they have different constitutions which have different priorities. And you can look at how constitutions of nations have evolved over time and what newer countries put into their constitutions. There's lots more about equalities, a lot more about uh, human rights and so forth that weren't in old, older constitutions, which tended to be written by rich white landowners, you know. And, and nowadays we have a much more inclusive democratic process. So won't it be interesting to see if we do get Scottish independence, what our constitution looks like and how we create that? Do we, for example, write that as a process with a, a, a citizens assembly? Do we ask the people of Scotland, what do you want your constitution to be? What do we enshrine into the structure of our country that's important to us? So I think we are living at some exciting historical times in, in Scotland. We have, you know, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to build a better country. And I think that that's really exciting. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting you have these views because um, I feel like in Scotland, certainly people live here, we have this kind of wee man syndrome when it comes to our political situation. You know, you have, um, you know, our um, a country in England uh, who's, you know, stereotypically oppressed us for years, the old enemy, you have like Braveheart and our 
in our national anthem, we literally sing about standing up to Proud Edwards English army centuries ago. It's part of our pride, it's part of our patriotism. And I think for a lot of people that uh, they think that that makes our uh, judgment cloudy. So uh, to translate that thought into a feeling, it's the same type of feeling you get when you see like Michael McIntyre on the telly and you just can't stand this part or it's so annoying. And it's, yeah, it's just part of our patriotism. And I think a lot of people think that that compromises having a rational uh, thinking cap on it, because if that's the driver for why a lot of people want independence, then surely we want to be uh, focusing on other things like the economies and uh, like more important things. So it's interesting that you still hold that view and don't have this irrational hatred of Harry Kane that a lot of Scottish people have, for example. I, I think it is really important that the Scottish independence movement be based on what, what was called during the last referendum, civic nationalism. You know, you're Scottish if you live here and we want to have a national conversation with everyone in Scotland about what being Scottish means. And I would, I would, people always ask me if I'm Scottish, you know, obviously from my accent, I say that I am not, but people say, some people are very kind and say, well, if you're, you're Scottish, if you live here. And some people will say that I'm a new Scot, which I love. So I, I, I have had a very positive experience in Scotland, find it very welcoming, but I think we should have that conversation, maybe a difficult conversation about, about what being Scottish means so that we can have an agreement because I would absolutely support that everyone who lives in Scotland is Scottish. I, you know, not being Scottish myself, I don't really have any time for that kind of blood and soil nationalism. I don't think that that should be part of our independence movement but it, you know it's not for me to say what's important to other people I, I think it, it's important for us to have that national conversation but I think there is a really good story to tell here about the kind of country that Scotland can be and we have are lucky that we are surrounded by models of other small successful European countries you know we have different types of countries we've got Denmark and the Scandinavian countries and we've got Ireland and we've got different the you know each of them and Norway and so on they have different relationships with the EU they have different types of governments they have different priorities but they are all small successful countries in their own right and there is nothing in the world that would stop Scotland from being one of them so the the conversation should be about what kind of country we want and I think that the independence movement has a positive story to tell there uh, and I think we can you know, the longer Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are part of this sort of disastrous UK government, they're doing more for the independence movement than any of us, you know, pro-independence team ever did, just by showing how disastrous and short-sighted the UK government is. And, you know, as they fit, continue to fiddle with the electoral system and um, gerrymander the boundaries and, and voter suppress, they're working at keeping themselves in power in perpetuity. When, when is the chance for change? And so I think a lot of people are coming around to the idea that Scottish independence is our best and soonest chance for change for something new and different. And my hope is that Scotland that could then be a leader in demonstrating not only these social justice values that I think are so important to the people of Scotland, why, we're, why we in Scotland are talking about a national care service, why we're talking about you know, putting rules on public procurement and so on to make sure that every get, everybody gets paid a fair wage. That's not the kind of conversation they're having down in England. That's a Scottish conversation that we're having here. And, but by, by implementing a version of Scotland that has this fairness built right into it, I'm hoping we can lead the other parts of the UK into having something else, as well as leading them back into the EU. Um, I mean, of course, I want Scotland to rejoin the EU and young people like yourself to get all those privileges back that you've lost to participate in the Erasmus scheme and live and work and study in 27 countries of Europe. I want you to have those opportunities back, but hopefully 
by getting them back ourselves and, and showing how great they are and how much we miss them, how much you lost when they were taken away from you, we can encourage a change in direction for the rest of the UK as well. Well, I mean, you sort of touched on uh, the fact that there's, uh, to quote yourself, nothing stopping us being like small European countries that, that are around us. And when I speak to people about their concerns about independence, they say things like, what on earth would our economy be based on? The, the oil revenue isn't as strong as it once was. Is my job going to be safe? Are we going to be worse off? Uh, not sticking by a country that was able to give us uh, that tremendous furlough scheme throughout the pandemic, you know, is going through something similar to Brexit and the hassle that goes with that really worth it? So I'm curious to hear this from you, Lorna, because I don't think you can undoubtedly state a case for something without acknowledging the opposition and what they're saying. What do you think is the best argument against independence and why do you think we should stick to independence even bearing that in mind? Well, I don't think the economic arguments against independence stand up. The reason the UK could do a furlough scheme is because the UK have all the tax and revenue and economics powers that we don't have. It wasn't anything to do with the size of the country. Other small countries like Denmark have been perfectly capable of implementing furlough schemes. That's, that's not to do with the size of your country. What Scotland's economy would be based on is the same things it's based on now. You know, we have many resources in Scotland, we have talented people, we have successful industries. And in fact, I would say that the UK government is strangling our industries and strangling our potential because they don't invest in the renewables industries in the way that we, we think that they should and that we know that they need to. They haven't in, uh, installed the kind of infrastructure that we need in Scotland to take advantage of them, but these are not devolved power, so we can't do it either. So I actually think that the Scottish economy has been strangled and damaged by being part of the UK. Whereas if we were independent, we would have those powers ourselves to do furlough schemes if we need to, but more importantly, to invest in the kind of economy that we need in Scotland and has a and have a huge potential for. We have 25% of all the offshore renewable capacity in Europe. That's enormous. We already generate nearly 100% of our electricity needs from renewable energy in Scotland, and we've barely started investing in it. We could, we could generate our own energy and export it as well. It's a massive industry. So in terms of the bigger economic picture, I have no concerns at all about Scottish independence. In terms of arguments against it, I mean, the problem is, is that every day, especially now that I'm in Scottish government, every day we come up against, well, we can't do that because it's not devolved. Oh, we can't do that because it's not devolved. Oh, we're waiting for the UK government to do that. So if anything, it's making my position more and more firm because every day I see the reasons that we can't do something or we're delayed in doing something or we're having to wait because the UK government hasn't got it figured out yet. Not only that, but we're seeing every day the damage from Brexit. So I don't think that Scottish independence is the same as Brexit cutting yourself off from your major market with nowhere to go, annoying your closest allies, um, stopping freedom of movement is damaging. Therefore, the reverse of that process, reinstating those trade relations with 27 of your nearest neighbors, reinstating freedom of movement for, with those, reinstating those trade flows will be good. They will be, you know, it's the opposite of bad. So I guess the, the I don't, I don't see any kind of big downsides to independence. We need to do it right. We need to have the conversations about how we're going to do things. Um, I mean, the normal people will squeak about it in terms of the rich, the very rich will all threaten to leave and big corporations will threaten to move their headquarters. And, but this is largely extremely rich people fussing that they aren't getting their way. And I think we need to stand up to them. As we saw during the pandemic, it isn't the billionaires that keep the economy going. It's the people who deliver the groceries. It's the people who keep the hospitals clean. It's what we 
our, what our, our essential workers are. That's what our economy is built on and that's who our economy needs to work for. Uh, you know, the billionaires and the landowners can, can squeak and scream that things will change. And, like, and for them, things do need to change to tackle the climate emergency, but also to make the system more fair. And um, so those are the people now, unfortunately, those are people that hold the media, you know, that own most of the billionaire newspapers and so on. So there'll be lots of squeaking and screaming from them. But I think we need to persist because the stories that they're telling aren't, aren't true. Um, you can challenge the economic status quo. You can challenge the status quo and still build something new and better. And I think that that's what we can do. We can take that power into our hands to do that. And I appreciate that answer, Lorna, because I always find when I'm watching the telly and politicians are asked to acknowledge an opposition's argument, they can't even mention it, let alone speak about it in depth. So I do, I do appreciate that from you. And obviously you're co-leading a party that's got a lot more to it than independence. You're obviously staunch environmentalists. We've got a big conference coming up next month in Glasgow, COP26. Can you speak a wee bit about what's actually going to take place there? What's the ideal outcome? And do you have any concerns or worries going into that? Absolutely, it's a really important question. So as a, as a world, as planet, as planet Earth, as people of planet Earth, this conference is a global conference. It's called CCOP because it's the conference of the parties, which means all interested parties. And in that case, that means all countries in the world that have an interest in the climate emergency. So this conference is really our last chance to save planet Earth. Like I don't want to underestimate or undersell how important this is. The last really important conference of the parties was uh, came up with the Paris Agreement. So um, previously, before the Paris Agreement, everyone was like, "Well, it can't be done. We can't get we can't get the countries of the world to agree to a plan. It will never happen." But a wonderful and amazing woman called Christiana Figueres made that happen. She and her team worked with countries around the world and different organizations and made the Paris Agreement happen, so that all countries in all the world agreed a model for keeping global heating to 1.5 degrees of warming, and we agreed that we would do that. What wasn't agreed at that time is how we're going to do that, because there's going to need to be some really big changes. We can no longer use fossil fuels for, to, for our energy, and we use them as, you know, we, you, you cook on a gas stove, you drive a petrol car, if you have a car, probably, you know, our, our buses are powered by diesel, our homes are heated with gas, but we, we cannot do that anymore. That's, that's got to stop, and we have to find other sources of energy. At the same time, there is already enough carbon in our atmosphere to drive global heating to three and a half degrees. So if we do, even if we stopped emitting all carbon, all carbon tomorrow, which of course we're not going to do, but even if we did, global temperatures would still reach three and a half degrees of warming. That's apocalyptic levels of warming. That's most of Glasgow underwater. That's coastal cities around the world inundated. That's millions and millions, billions, I would say, of people's lives destroyed their homes, their livelihoods. That is all coral reefs dead. That is devastation to our food, our clean water. Um, you know, that three and a half degrees of warming is apocalyptic level stuff. So at the same time as that we have to stop using fossil fuels, we have to absorb back out of the atmosphere a good chunk of the carbon that's already there. And the best way to do that is by having a healthy landscape and healthy marine environment, because things like plankton and seaweed and forests and peat, peat's wonderful at this, and healthy wetlands, all of these things pull carbon back out of the atmosphere. So we have two big projects to do in Scotland, but everywhere, and that is to get our energy from other sources and to rebuild our natural environment. And that is like making sure that our land is growing healthy woodlands, that our seas have healthy, 
healthy corals and healthy kelp and healthy plankton that our peatlands are restored so they can absorb all that carbon. So it's a big project. And what COP26 has to agree is how we're going to do that globally, everyone, everywhere, how we're going to make that happen. And I guess my doubts are that, especially if you look at Boris Johnson in the UK government, he doesn't seem to get it. He was calling environmentalists Kermit the Frog the other week. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get that this is our last chance to save the planet. He thinks it's a big old joke. And so he's invited the big oil and gas companies and he's invited his rich pals along to slap themselves on the back and have a good old jolly. Uh, and I don't really think that Boris Johnson and his pals have the vision that's needed to save the planet. But having said that, there are a lot of very knowledgeable people and activists and scientists and environmentalists from around the world, experts in all their fields coming to COP and hopefully, hopefully we can get something done where the nations of the world agree how to stop the disastrous effects on our biosphere so that we can, we as a human species can continue to live on for, for centuries, you know, for hopefully millennia. Um, but this is it, this is our last chance. So that's why this is important that everyone's making a big deal out of it. And that's why I am so nervous because if we don't get this right, humanity is in for a rough a rough time the next century or so. And alongside the environment, um, another topical issue that I want to talk to you about today, which is uh, of uh, a similar en enormity, if you like, is the drugs crisis that we have in Scotland just now. Uh, I don't know if you uh, noticed Douglas Ross in the media this week saying the SNP were out of touch with the working class on this and he was the he was the man to uh, to reinstate our relationship with the working class on this matter and we've got such a desperate need of change um and you've you and your party um specifically the greens have had some light like recently uh, on the potential for decriminalization of drugs and I, I had a little look at portugal um who have decriminalized all drugs and they've seen massive drops in overdoses hiv infections you know drug related crime is this the way forward? Of course it is. Absolutely, 100%. Drugs policy needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be based on what actually works. And so uh, uh, the Tories are wildly out of touch. They're still fighting this war on drugs that was invented in the 1980s and hasn't worked. The war on drugs, making drugs criminal, cr criminalizing people who, uses drugs, who, uh, who use drugs doesn't work. All it does is, is makes drugs really, really dangerous. And we can see that in every country where the war on drugs is being waged, that it, it isn't working and it endangers people's lives. And that is what is so frustrating is because the conservatives are out of touch with what actually works and what actually will save lives. And drug policy is not devolved. The misuse of drug act is a reserved power that's reserved to the UK and they won't change. So they can talk about change, but they won't deliver it. You're absolutely right. Portugal is an excellent example, but other countries around the world have different policies, Portugal is just the kind of best well-known one in terms of decriminalizing drug use. And Scotland itself has some very excellent examples of decriminalizing um, or making, making social matters out of what used to be criminal matters, knife crime being the most successful example. When Scotland started treating knife crime as a social issue rather than a criminal issue, we drove knife crime right down. And that is the way to do it because all of these things stem from social issues. And if that, if you've got to treat the root cause, because if you take someone who, you know, uses a little bit of drugs or carries a knife and treat them as a criminal, all you're doing is forcing them further down that path into more and more danger. You can intervene early on these things and get people the help they need, the support that they need. If you don't criminalize them, if you say, okay, you're a human, you've made some bad choices, you've made some mistakes, you have some health problems, we can help you with that. Um, 
it, nothing is solved by, by making people criminals. So absolutely, that is the correct way to go. That will save lives, but it is this intense sense of frustration because, because it's not devolved to Scotland. And so we have to sit and watch, you know, essentially people die without having the full powers to do something about it. Having said that, I know that this is something that the Scottish government will be working on very closely and we need to, we need to do better. And I think the Scottish government knows they need to do better with what powers they have because we've got to save people's lives. It's, it is a national shame. And I think we can all agree on that. Okay, and, and yeah, I find that interesting because, uh, you know, and uh, would that be what you would intend to do if Scotland became an independent country? Because I know you, you talk a lot about sort of testing centres and making the environment safer, um, but what would concern me is if you made drugs illegal, drug users would be tapping into this going, well, Barry, at least I didn't have to worry about getting caught. <laughs> and would we, would we have to see an oversee an, a boom before it gets better? Or how do you see the trends after a decision like that? Well, I think what, what you're kind of buying into is this idea that the reason that you don't use drugs is because they're illegal. Um, and and I, I don't think that or that's true. <laughs> Lots of people use drugs and they're illegal. And the problem is, is that, you, and you can see this from when you see high profile people using drugs, celebrities and high profile politicians and so on, using drugs is not inherently dangerous. Um, celebrities are known, you know, many celebrities, and rich, rich people use them. Um, some well-known politicians have, have, have used drugs. So using drugs is not inherently dangerous, but using drugs becomes dangerous when the drugs are illegal because you can't get them safely. So I, I for example, went to university in a place where uh, use of marijuana was decriminalized. Now I don't use marijuana because I have no interest in using it. So it doesn't, you know, it's not that I couldn't get it or can use it. I just have no interest in using that. That's not something that's part of my life. But what makes it dangerous is when you can't get a hold of these things safely. So I don't think that you, if you're not a drug user, would change your use pattern. You know, that's not a thing. Um, but if you did decide to use it, you could get a hold of drugs safely that you knew the purity content and with some safety instructions on them, only take this much, you know, take one pill, <laughs> only take one, don't, and don't mix with alcohol and don't, you know, you could get some safety instructions with that. So that if you did decide to use drugs, which many, many people do, you could do so safely. And that's the important thing, is that rather than making a moral judgment, like, well, all drugs are dangerous and bad and wrong, we know people use drugs. Uh, we know that many people do use drugs safely. So how do we make it safe for everyone who wants to use them? And I don't think that that is the same as encouraging people to use drugs because, I mean, lots of people, for example, don't drink. And nowadays, more and more young people don't drink. So I don't think that there's an element of just because it's legal to drink doesn't mean you want to. I mean, lots of people are vegetarians, perfect legal to eat meats, you know, but people just decide that they don't want to. And, you know, and it's, it's fine to try and persuade people not to. You can persuade people not to smoke. You can persuade people not to drink. You can try and persuade people not to use drugs. But if we're going to accept the reality that humans do use drugs, that some humans want to use drugs, then we need to make sure they can do that safely. We, they shouldn't be putting their lives in danger over this. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us, Lorna. Before you go, as I mentioned before, we had a bit of a hashtag Ask Lorna uh, trend on Twitter uh, before this interview. What I was going to do is pick the best three, but unfortunately we only got two questions back that don't make me look like a total rad, so I'll, I'll ask them instead. Uh, and the first one says, I'm going to have to translate you, uh, this for you. It says, Teams Your Dad Support. And that's basically a Scottish way of saying, do you have an affiliation with a certain sports team? 
I don't actually. So my people, we, we, we're ice hockey, or you'd say ice hockey, we just say hockey. So my hometown is Calgary. So I would of course support the Calgary Flames, okay. but I'm afraid I don't have any, not having grown up here, I don't have any association with any particular Scottish teams. Although of course in the Olympics and so on, I would support Scotland. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. And you know, I appreciate you might not want to talk about your parliamentary peers like this, but have you ever played a game called Snogmarry Avoid? <laughs> I'm aware of the game and I'm now worried about the direction that this is going. <laughs> the question was directed at Snogmarry Avoid, Nicola Sturgeon, Douglas Ross and Anna Sawa. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I think, well, I think I'd marry Nicola Sturgeon because she's phenomenal. I think she's wonderful. Um, we'd well, have to snog Anna Sarwar. He's a nice man. But I'd have to avoid Douglas Ross, obviously. <laughs> That's what I thought you would put, right? So, <laughs> Lorna, thank you very much for coming on our show. I really appreciate you and uh, I hope you've enjoyed yourself today as well. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. See you later.